Uh, just a review where we are. Last week we started a new section in the book of Revelation, a section dealing or in which John's visions center around seven trumpets in which we see the sovereign God uh, measure out punishments upon the earth. Uh, last week we spent some time talking about trumpets uh, generally, uh, particularly their ritual and military use in the Old Testament and how in the New Testament often uses them uh, in terms of announcing the last day. Um, in particular, we saw how these trumpets, uh, as uh, they're being used in the book of Revelation, uh, is announcing God's judgment upon the earth. Uh, and actually unleashing God's judgment on the, upon the earth and using that Old Testament use of trumpets as if God is conducting a holy war against the earth. We also talked about uh, last week in the descriptions of the first four trumpets how there are lots of allusions in this section to the plagues God inflicted upon the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. Um, and we talked some last week about how the purpose of those Egyptian plagues was to, uh, so that the Egyptians would know that the Lord is God. And through the Egyptians that indeed all the earth would know that the Lord was God. Today we turn to chapter 9, which covers just the next two trumpet visions. So um, uh, last week we had the first four in relatively short order, and as we get into the descriptions of the next two, notice how the length uh, in the um, uh, descriptive language involved in describing uh, the effects of these trumpet blasts uh, expands. And I think um, that's part of the emphasis given to these last three trumpet blasts, as we saw at the end of chapter 8, that these last three are set apart uh, for being um, uh, particularly severe in their announcements of woe, woe, woe. As bad as the first four uh, were, as we saw last week, um, it's these next three that are described in terms of a threefold woe. So let me uh, read uh, Revelation chapter 9, and I'll actually um, start with verse 13 just to, to emphasize the transition from those first four trumpets to the next uh, three. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green plant, or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. 
They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, their faces like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound." The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Uh, thus far, the word of God, let's ask him to uh, bless its uh, hearing in our midst. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do acknowledge your rightful power over the heavens and the earth, that you are the sovereign God who rules all at your good pleasure. As we read uh, of this tremendous destruction that's and torment that's inflicted upon the earth. May we be reminded that we too are rightfully deserving of these plagues. But it is only by your sealing spirit, it's only by uh, our union with Christ that we are saved these things. For we too, in our own selves, are deserving of your righteous wrath. Lord God, as we look at these woes, for woes they are, would you give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear that we would know of your sovereign power and that we would know of the destruction that comes from evil and from wickedness. Lord, help us to be those who uh, live lives of constant repentance. Live lives seeing our need of you. 
that we might have uh, moments uh, like this where we uh, stand, stand in the face of torment and proclaim your name. Uh, give us insight now into your word. Uh, fill us with your spirit that we might not just be hearers of it, but that we would uh, seek to enact your will on this earth. And it's in the power of Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the fifth trumpet um, starts with uh, a fallen star from heaven. Thing or person? Good or evil? What do we think of this fallen star? Okay, so it's a personification um, of this star. So, you know, as we think about it and try to, you know, figure out what it is, um, you know, we should pay close attention to John's language here, and he's describing it in personal terms. So, applying um, not a uh, um, uh, applying a personal pronoun to him. Uh, yeah. Why do you think he's Lucifer? I mean, I, and you think he's bad. Why, why specifically Lucifer? <laughs> oh, Milton, Old Testament, you know. It's in the English tradition somewhere. It's in a couple places, but yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I'm giving you opportunity to share your tremendous knowledge with the rest of us, James. Yeah, Mike. Um, that's a good question. Is this uh, so? Back in the uh, Mike, what Mike's referring to in chapter eight, in the um, is it the third right third trumpet blast? Um, a gr we we also saw a great star. Uh, from heaven. And I think what's interesting is that um, that star, he sees that star falling from heaven. It's sort of an active pronoun where, uh, or active verb, whereas this, it's a, um, it's past tense. So he's seen a star that has fallen. So it, it could be a continuation of this, the same star or, or um, you know, or it's a, you know, that was a demonic heavenly figure that came and unleashed destruction, and that was one was called Wormwood, and this is a new one. Um, so, but I think what, what we're getting at is both of them are fallen stars uh, unleashing horrible things upon on, upon the earth. Um, and is this language? Uh, in personal language, as Mark pointed out, you know, a demonic figure. Um, and Luce, is it Lucifer, as, as James is suggesting? Yeah. Yeah, and notice there, um, I'm really glad you used the word power or authority, that, that this figure has been given this power at, at least to unleash. And, um, you know, some people tie it, tie this figure to the the named description we have at the end of the verse, that there's an actual, as we get into these locusts that are inflicting this, this torment upon the earth, that they have a king, and that king is named here in Hebrew and in Greek. So some people identify the, the, the fallen star with this leader of the locust. But either way, I mean, we have this description um, in verse 1 
that authority uh, has been given. He's been given the key. You know, as we think of keys, you know, in the New Testament in particular, as um, we just did uh, Matthew last night in our Bible study, you know, this, that great confession of faith that, that Peter has, and then upon it Jesus says to you, I give the keys, uh, you know, that, that power is given. And, key is being used in that same sense here, that that uh, this figure has been given power. Yeah, and, um, and here, it, whatever authority this figure has, it's, it's clearly because he's given the key. It's derived authority. And the place we see, um, uh, you know, whether we identify um, this abyss as uh, Hades or, you know, the place of the dead, um, we can talk about what the abyss is. The very first chapter of the book of Revelation um, says this about Jesus. Uh, this, so this is Jesus speaking in chapter 1 in John's first vision. Fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So uh, you're absolutely right to sort of point us to the ultimate authority uh, for, you know, the key. So if this is a demonic figure, a Lucifer kind of figure, then, it, you know, what the passage is emphasizing, that the power that figure has is, is derived and limited to only what um, God and the Lamb gives it. Uh, and a verse that, to go back to James's, uh, I actually didn't bring the Isaiah verse, but I actually brought Jesus from Luke chapter 10. And this has been, um, this has been a, a set of verses I thought a lot about um, this week in thinking about this passage. And as I read these verses, you'll see why. Um, so this is Luke chapter 10, um, starting in verse 17. So this is after he sent the disciples out, to, and then they come back and report. And in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So coming back in the sort of triumphant moment. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like heaven, like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. You know, get in think chapter 9. You know, even though we're talking about locusts, those locusts are described as having scorpion-like uh, aspects. You know, we, the sixth trumpet talks about horses, but those horses have serpent-like aspects. Um, uh, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And again, in this chapter that we have this emphasis that these things are falling upon the, those who are unsealed. Um, the ones who don't have the seal upon them. Uh, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Um, so, uh, you know... <laughs> No matter how we specifically identify this figure, um, I think it's right to sort of see it as unleashing the terrors of, of hell upon the earth. I mean, you, we sometimes hear things, you know, descriptions of war or something that's hell on earth. I mean, that's literally sort of the, the, the picture we're given here of the abyss as being opened up and out of that, the horrors of that pit are now overflowing the earth. Um, you know, it's uh, this 
terrifying image that we're given of this figure that comes and unleashes this. Yeah, and to think of, um, and I want to get into the, the locust or whatever these little critters are um, in a minute and sort of talk about, you know, their qualities. But to, but the emphasis here, um, you know, and when we talked about, well, I was emphasizing the, the, the authority the keys that have been given is a limited one. You know, that, that there is, you can do this, but you can't do that. Um, they're following orders. Um, uh, yeah, I think there's a, that's a great uh, picture in, in Job of that sort of hedging, the way God hedges the accuser's authority in Job. I think we see a similar kind of hedging here. And I, the emphasis, um, the other passage I thought a, a, you know, a lot about um, this week is again another passage from the Gospels. You know, don't fear the one who can harm the body. Fear the one who can harm body and soul. You know, fear that one. And that seems to be again the emphasis that we're given here. That even though these, um, uh, you know, whether these plagues that we see in in the fifth and sixth trumpets is the emphasis on their physical effects or is it on the kind of torment, you know, the internal effects that, that the real result of this, of, of these two trumpets, six, five and six, is the kind of internal terror that comes from it and torment. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, and we, if we think of this sort of, um, you know, uh, longing torment for death and not getting death. I mean, again, it's sort of, that is a great picture of the torments of hell. I think this sort of, uh, you know, longing for peace and release and not finding that, not ever having that moment of peace and release. Um, uh, Beale, uh, one of the commentaries I looked at, it said this way, uh, again, on this sort of the, the terrors of hell being unleashed upon earth. As a result of Christ's death and resurrection, the devil and his legions have, have, been, have begun to be judged. And the effect of their judgment is unleashed on unbelieving humanity who, who give their ultimate allegiance to the devil. So it's sort of this, uh, this is the way uh, demons are tormented in a similar way. And now they're unleashing those torments upon those who follow them. Um, that's, again, terrifying kind of picture. Mike. Yeah, that these torments are falling on a particular set of people. And again, we talked some last week about you know the the plagues falling on the Egyptians. And I, again, I think that picture is the Israelites were living among the Egyptians at that moment, and these plagues are falling upon you know this you know hail falling on this place, not this place, you know. The plague coming and striking down the firstborn, except for those who whose houses have been marked with blood. And you know, John in this vision has, is employing the similar kind of language. These plagues are befalling the Egyptians, which in this case are worldwide people who have refused to believe. Um, I mean, it's sort of as as we think about it here. It seems to be. Um, wanting some kind of release or cessation from this torment, and they're not getting it. Um, that seems to be, um, I mean, at least that's how I read verses 5 and 6, that, you know, they are being tormented, and they want, um, 
release from this torment. They want this torment to cease. They want peace. And, and you know, is death what brings them the cessation of that torment? Yeah. Yeah, and it's already, um, and again, we'll get into the, the locust. I mean, it's already, I mean, if we sort of think of, of um, and if we think of, of locusts and sort of, or, or scorpion stings or whatever other kind of torments we see, usually we think of those as being sort of abbreviated, you know, you get stung by the scorpion and then you stomp on it. <laughs> or, you know, eventually it's going to run out of venom. But, it, you know, it goes on for five months, which, you know, um, is both a, an extensive period of time, but also a limited period of time. So they don't know it's limited, but to them it seems extensive. Well, it's, it's interesting that um, all of the people, apart from those who are sealed by God, experience this torment. And then toward the end of the chapter, a third of them are killed. And then after a third of them are killed, those who are remaining that are not sealed still won't repent. And it reminds us of the parable in, in Luke of Lazarus, Dives and Lazarus, where Lazarus says, you know, uh, where, Di where the rich man says, you know, come and put a drop of water on my tongue if, if you could, but he can't. And could I come back just for a day to tell my family? And Jesus says, no, they, because they wouldn't believe you. And here they still won't believe. And again, it's sort of what we talked about last week with the Egyptians. Even after all these plagues, the majority of them still, and as personified by Pharaoh, uh, even though they acknowledge that God is doing this, they don't repent. I mean, that's, you know, Pharaoh can, um, in one sense, confesses his, that he's a sinner, but doesn't change, you know, doesn't turn from that sin. This is so astonishing to us think, you know, even in the face of torment and death, that, that those remaining wouldn't even just accept Pascal's wager and say, okay, I'll believe because even if it's not true, what do I have to lose kind of thing? But they, they still won't even go on that even most base level reason to, to believe. Yeah, the emphasis is on that sort of stubborn Absolutely. hardness of heart. Um, all right, well, let's talk some about um, our, our locusts. <laughs> um, what, what do we make of these locusts? That, you know, it, so we've got this picture of smoke coming from this abyss, covering the earth, and out of the smoke is locust. And my kids have been watching Little House on the Prairie, and I remember the description of the locust storm and... In, in one of those books, and that's always sort of terrified me, the kind of sky blackened out by these clouds of insects. <laughs> um, you know, what am I really afraid of? That would be one of them. <laughs> Things I would really be afraid of, insect swarms. Um, but what, what do we make of these, these creatures, these locusts? How are they described? <laughs> Yeah, we're not given a size description, um, and we're given lots of detail on what these things are. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, the kind of detail, you know, flowing hair like a woman. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I would notice that. That would be the thing I'd be noticing, you know, swarm of locusts. Yeah, to, and we see that picture in the Old Testament. Um, uh, the beginning chapters of Joel is one place, and you can... 
you know, people variously, um, or people wrestle with, is Joel comparing an army destroying Israel to a host of locusts? So he's using that, you know, this army that's going to fall and bring destruction to Israel is going to lay the land clean like a you know, this horde of swarm of locusts? Or is it, um, you know, this, these locusts that are going to lay, you know, lay Israel bare like an army? Because, I mean, he's, uh, Joel starting, so people sort of argue, is it locusts that are like an army or is it an army like locusts? Uh, but using those qualities, you know, to use the quality of locusts to describe the destruction unleashed. And I, I think that's a good... Um, and as we think of these things, as Christy said, these do not seem like the <laughs> little insexual kind of critters we think of locusts. So it's, it's that um, metaphoric language uh, that's being employed here. Yeah, if these are locusts, they are locusts being described in the exact opposite terms than the Bible has used to describe locusts previously. And in fact, I mean, I think um, the vision here absolutely is thinking of all the ways that, that locusts have been described in the Old Testament. I mean, to think of the plague of the locusts um, in Egypt uh, are described this way. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. They ate all the plants in the land, all the fruit of the trees. Not a green thing remained neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. So, you know, the, the traditional descriptions of the effects of locusts is laying the earth completely bare. The description of these locusts is leaving the land completely untouched. Um, which, again, I, I think is, uh, you know, the, using the image of locusts to describe the swarm of these things, but they're not acting like locusts would naturally act. <laughs> um, and to think of, again, the sort of, um, these locusts are not typical in that they're following a specific set of orders in a sense. You know, the, the reason you know, they're commanded not to harm the grass, the earth, or any green plant. Um, and again, um, we we think of locusts not responding to command. Um, Proverbs, um, let's see, where do I have it? Proverbs 30, 27, um, you know, says, the locusts have no king, but all of them march in rank. So to emphasize, there's no single leader, they're not following orders, but they, you know, you know, there, there was an article like recently about sort of swarm dynamics and you know how birds or insects sort of act in tandem without sort of one central set of it. So trying to come up with different, you know, people are studying and trying to come up with how do they do that? Um, and that's the picture here we're given of, again, not... Um, locusts following their natural inclinations, but locusts under direct command, following orders. And again, this is the description of the Egyptian plague um, describes locusts this way. The Psalm, um, this is Psalm 105, talking about um, uh, the Exodus. He spoke and the locusts came. So again, that emphasis on, on these um, uh, these, this plague being God-given, God-directed, limited in that they can, uh, they're not touching the earth, but they're touching bodies. They can touch bodies, but they can't kill them. The 
described as having locust-like qualities, but also scorpion-like qualities. And you know, our, our image of scorpions is probably from you know, cartoons or TV shows of these big things that rattle rattlesnakes and stuff. But we spend a lot of time in the desert hiking in Arizona and stuff, and most scorpions are very, very small. Most of them won't kill you. They'll, they'll, but they, they will, if you get stung by a scorpion, it will annoy you for a, a long period of time. They won't, usually don't bother you unless you bother them. But most of them are not the deadly kind. And so you can imagine th this swarm of scorpion-like things continuing to sting you and bother you, not enough to kill you, not, but only enough just that you can't rest. There's, there's no relief, no relief from it. Yeah, my, my picture of scorpions comes from my friend Dan from grad school, got a job at Arizona State. And when he first moved there, um, he lived in this condo and uh, he didn't have any furniture yet. And so he's just sleeping on a sleeping bag. And so he turned off the light, went to bed, and he kept hearing this. <laughs> Child flipped on the lights, all the scorpions scatter. <laughs> he's like, I slept with the lights on for the rest of that night. <laughs> But uh, yeah, he, he described them. He's like, you know how you know we used to complain about the big cockroaches and and you know places in the south. When you're in the southwest, think scorpions are the cockroaches of the southwest. Um, but yeah, so to think of so and again, he's using these. He's he's piling metaphor upon metaphor here. I think not to give us a systematic description of, uh, of, you know, well, it's got this in the front and this in the back. It, the point isn't that. The point is to multiply the metaphors to show the effects of this kind of torment. So these are, are things that torment like scorpions torment. Um, yeah. It produces no change of heart. Uh, um, which again, uh, to think about the plagues. I mean, I, I I really think that you know we think of Pharaoh. You know, he sees this over and over again. People are coming begging him, and he he won't relent. Um, you know, uh, and just that stubbornness of a sinful heart. And I, you know, we we in um, our Bible study in, again in Matthew last night. Um, we were covering the section where the Pharisees come and ask for a sign. And Jesus says, uh, you know, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And, you know, you, and he emphasizes you've got sign, the signs, just read, you read the sky, read the signs around you, read everything you're seeing. Um, and, you know, they want something, you know, something spectacular or something, you know, but even if they got it, it seems they still wouldn't relent. Yeah, George. Or if they do attribute it to God, they use it in the sense of how cruel and merciless is it. So I don't want to believe a God that inflicts this kind of, of torment and tor torture. So rather than uh, repent, uh, again, you know, it, either the response is to turn to the human, uh, to insulate themselves and sort of you know, go into default mode, which for me is problem solving. Oh, I can fix that. Um, you know, I can handle that myself. Or to, you know, if they do read it in some sort of, well, man, this God is capricious and heartless and, you know, some of the people in the tsunami were good people and didn't deserve to be swept away, so I'm going to reject. And 
Right. How could, how could a good God allow these things to happen? Revelation, talking about glory. Um, and I always say I'm a historian because I really like hindsight. Um, you know, I am great at looking back and saying, yeah, that's what they should have done. <laughs> well, that's what that was. Um, predictive, not so, so much. But the emphasis, I think, isn't the, the focus on the material description, I think, again, isn't to give us um, a picture of... of um, I don't think it's the point is to give us a picture of a material reality. The emphasis is on the spiritual reality here. That you know these are things that torment um, in in these verses. And then in the second trumpet, um, or the sixth trumpet, the second one we see in 